Well, if you have your Bible, turn with me to the book of 2 Peter. Uh, we'll be there in 2 Peter for a few more weeks. 2 Peter chapter 1. Uh, we, we're going to finish chapter 1 uh, this morning. And uh, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just excited to get to say that, that you know, we're going to finish, finish chapter 1 this morning. Now, um, well, let me just start. Jesus, MacArthur, Jay-Z, the great ones always return. And when they do, their hair will be perfect. Why in the world did I start that way? Because I was at a movie. Um, and there was a, a, a teaser for another movie that's coming out, and those were the lines used to introduce the teaser to this, to this movie that's coming out, Anchorman 2. Okay, not a fan, all right? So I'm gonna, but, I'm, I, so I'm, but maybe it entertains you, so I'm not going to comment on the movie, but I do want to comment on what that movie represents, or at least what that teaser represents about our culture. Did you hear how it starts? Jesus... MacArthur and Jay-Z, the great ones always return, and when they do, their hair will be perfect. I think with that, you know, the movie Anchorman 2, though it may be entertaining, I will, I will never know, okay, but it, it might be entertaining, but I do know this, that it's kind of a silly, foolish comedy, right? And so... What the teaser for this movie's done is, is kind of put the return of Christ in sort of this foolish, comedic company. All right? and, and I think that tells us something about our culture. I think it tells us that our culture really sees the return of Christ as a fiction and probably a humorous one at that. I suspect that that teaser was meant really to sort of belittle the idea of the coming of Christ, to treat it as fiction, a myth, not a fact or a reality. The truth is, most in our culture doubt that the return of Christ is true and real. And... Some in the church may also doubt that the return of Christ is, a, is true and real. Some today sitting here may doubt that the return of Christ is true and real. As we look at the text this morning, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 to 21, here's what I believe we will see. I think we will see clearly that the truth revealed in Christ and the Scriptures is sure because it comes from God. The truth revealed in Christ and the Scriptures is sure because it comes from God. Now, here's, the, here's though where we struggle. We doubt the truth. We doubt it. Sometimes we doubt inwardly, okay? So as we say in our mind or we say in our heart, I, I just don't believe that's true. We say that. We think that. And then, and then sometimes we may 
say in our mind we believe this truth, but we doubt it outwardly because we don't live as though it is true. So we might say to ourselves, might even say to others, this is true. I believe this, this is true, but our lives never communicate that we believe this is true. So we doubt. And then even when we don't doubt the truth, we live without urgency concerning the truth. That is our situation. And I believe that's the very situation that Peter was writing about here in Second Peter chapter 1, 16 to 21, as he's writing to the church, uh, the churches of Asia Minor, dealing with doubt and urgency. So let's read the text together um, this morning, beginning in verse 16, 2 Peter chapter 1. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now, we've, uh, this, this is our third sermon in this series in Second Peter, third sermon in chapter 1. And here's what I love about the, the practice of expository preaching that we, for the most part, uh, enjoy here at Redeemer Church. And that is, we get to see the connectedness from verses of Scripture and passages of Scripture and chapters and books. And, and what we are reading today, what we just read and what we're looking at and studying today, verses 16 to 21, is still connected to the verses before it. And then those are connected to the verses before it. So, so really what we just read, we need to go all the way back and think about verse 1. We need to see that the surety of God's transforming power, verses 1 through 5, and the command to live out that transformation, verses 6 through 12, and the urgency to do so, verses 13 through 15, as, as well as the promise of the powerful return of Christ, this is all confirmed in the revelation of truth from God testified to in the text that we just read and are studying today. And now, we've already indicated that the, the main theme of this text today is that we can be sure of the revelation from God through Christ and the Scriptures. We know that that revelation of truth is true because it is from God. And we know it's from God because, first of all, it's not the witness of man. Look at verses 16, 20, and 21. First, verse 16, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And then verse 20, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture came from someone's own interpretation. And then verse 21, no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. What I want us to see about the surety of this revealed truth being from God, first of all, is that it's not from man. It's not the witness of man. The text clearly communicates that. Now, I know the text does say Peter claims we were eyewitnesses of his majesty, and, and I think we need to be careful how we understand that. Peter is not claiming the truthfulness of the, the word that's already spoken and the promise of Christ's return. He's not saying that's sure because of us, but it's sure because of what we saw. It's, it's not our testimony. It's just our witnessing of a different testimony that makes this sure and true. So, And then the rest of the text that we read, especially verses 20 and 21, makes it very clear that no true prophecy of Scripture comes through a man's interpretation or by the will of man. It's not created by man. But when we hold to truth based on the witness of man, we're on a slippery slope. Because we have to consider both the origin of that testimony and the content of that testimony. Well, what is the origin of the testimony or witness of man? So if we were going to base our knowledge of the truth of God based solely on the witness of man, what would be the origin of that witness or testimony? Well, it would be, look in verse 16, we do not follow cleverly devised myths. If what we knew to be true was based solely on the witness of man, the origin of that witness would be cleverly devised myths. Do you know what a cleverly devised myth is meant to do? Deceive. It's meant to deceive you. It's meant to deceive us because it is, it, first, it's a myth. And by definition, a myth has no basis in fact. Now, maybe a myth is meant to teach some moral lesson or, or to teach something, I don't know, a moral lesson or something about the truth. Maybe a myth might, might be devised to teach something about the truth, but it still has no basis in fact. And in most cases, a myth is meant to deceive. And then the fact that it's cleverly devised. Okay, that cleverly devised phrase when referring to something that has no basis in fact. So I have cleverly devised something. I feel like I should wring my hands when I say that. <laughs> you know, some... some Maniacal life cleverly devised this story with no basic and no basis in fact to deceive or manipulate you to get you to do what I want, which is namely give me your credit card number. Okay, I mean, seriously, 
that that's when, when we base our knowledge of the truth on the witness of man, we have to understand that the origin of that witness is made up. It's false. It's a myth. It has no basis in fact. In the most cases, it's meant to deceive and manipulate you. That's why the surety of this revelation of God and Christ in the Scriptures is not on the basis of man. Because of its origin, human, human interpretation, will of man, and its content, cleverly devised myths. That's actually the content. The origin is human interpretation and human will, or the will of man, and we know that those are faulty, right? Why are those faulty? Why is my interpretation, if it's only mine, why is it faulty? Well, first of all, I don't know everything, right? Right. I'm glad somebody agrees with that. Yeah. I don't know everything. So obviously my interpretation is faulty when it's just my interpretation only. We're not talking about when we're under the, the power and the influence of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is interpreting the Scripture for us and through us for this proclamation that's different. But simply just if the origin of the testimony is the interpretation or will of man, then it's faulty because men don't know everything. Okay? What else? What, why else is my interpretation faulty? Hmm? I could be biased. What is probably my greatest bias? Don't say Oklahoma football. I know that was, I know that was on the tip of your tongue. Actually, believe it or not, and, and Oklahoma football is not my greatest bias. It's sin. I'm a sinner. That's why, that's why my, my interpretation and my will can't be trusted, because I'm a sinner. And sin taints everything, right? We, we teach and hold to the understanding of total depravity, right? And that's what total depravity means. Total depravity means every aspect of our human experience is corrupted and tainted by sin. So my will, my, my ability to interpret, my intellect, all of the, that. It's all tainted by sin. So no, no man's interpretation or no revelation of truth by the will of man can be trusted because it's from man and man is inherently evil and he is fallen and he's imperfect and he's finite and has limited knowledge, okay, and limited ability. No, that's so, so its origin makes it fruitless and useless, but then also its content. Its content being cleverly devised myths, which are stories with no, no basis in fact, meant primarily to deceive and to manipulate us. So the, the origin and the content of the witness of man discludes it. We should reject that. It's not a basis for surety of the revelation of truth. But instead, a witness that should give us confidence in the surety of the revelation of truth is the witness of divine affirmation. And we see that in verses 16 and 17, the witness of divine affirmation. And we're going to follow the same pattern. We're going to look at the origin and the content of the witness of divine affirmation. Look again, verses 16 and 17. Uh, Peter begins to tell us 
what this divine affirmation is going to be in the end of verse 16 by saying, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty, referring to Christ. So really, Christ's majesty is part of the divine affirmation. And he's saying, we saw that. We saw Christ's majesty. So the divine affirmation is Christ's majesty. But then he goes on in verse 17, For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Then verse 18, Also we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, and we were with him on the holy mountain. So verses 16, 17, and 18. And Peter's clearly recounting his experience of what? The transfiguration, right. The transfiguration, that time where, where Peter, along with James and John, went up on the mountain with Jesus, and Jesus was transfigured uh, before them. In other words, the, the Scripture tells us in the, in the Gospels, in the Synoptic Gospels, and, and Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we read about how, first of all, Jesus shone with a his his, his garments were extra white so that they were blindingly bright. His countenance glowed. So there was this majestic glory emanating from Jesus. And, and then there was this voice from heaven. And the voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And that, that is the divine affirmation that Peter, James, and John witnessed and they're saying, this witness of divine affirmation, this is a basis for surety in the revelation from God. We know it's true. The truth revealed from God, we know it is sure. Because God himself affirmed it in Christ. And particularly at the transfiguration. Seeing Jesus in his glory. Seeing and then hearing from heaven this affirmation from God himself, God's own voice, saying, This is my Son, in whom I am well pleased. So we want to look at this witness of divine affirmation. What is its origin? Well, its origin is God. God's voice from heaven and the glory and honor bestowed upon or placed upon Jesus. The, the, this the glowing brightness, the white garments, the glowing countenance, and the voice from heaven. Those are all affirmations from God. Only God could do that. Only God can, can produce that kind of glory. Only God can speak with His voice. So God is affirming Jesus, the truth revealed in Him. So God is the origin. And just... For a moment, just think for a moment, what, what Peter tells us when he's recounting his experience on the Mount of Transfiguration. Because something else happened, right, that he didn't even talk about. What was the other pretty significant but yet not talked about thing right here? Somebody else showed up. Two guys. Yeah, Moses and Elijah. On the Mount of Transfiguration, both Moses and Elijah appear when Jesus is being transfigured before them and they hear this voice from heaven and all that. And he didn't even talk about that. Why? Well, because that's not really divine affirmation. We can see divine work involved in these two dead guys showing up. Okay, that's, but still, th that might be confused with 
witness of man. No, because we're talking about the witness of divine affirmation, God's affirmation. And so he doesn't even really he doesn't even talk about Elijah and Moses, though at the time that was a big deal, because what did Peter want to do? Remember? Hmm? Yeah, he wanted to he wanted to make some shelters, some tents, uh, some booths. He wanted he wanted to he, he wanted to camp out there, you know, and he wanted to have and he wanted to wanted Elijah and Moses to camp out with him, right? Okay, that's what he wanted. He wanted all of that. Um, but now he sees in this communication that that's, that's really what, what the transfiguration was not about. That wasn't about Elijah and Moses. It was about Jesus and God's affirmation of the truth revealed in Christ. So the origin of the witness of divine affirmation is God. We see that in the voice from heaven. We, we see it in the glory and honor bestowed upon Jesus from God the Father. But also in its content. Look at the content of this divine affirmation. First of all, the voice says, this is my son. Okay? This is my son. So Jesus' divine sonship is affirmed. God is making it clear, this is my son, and he is just like me. In fact, he displays my glory. Because, as we would read later in the New Testament, the fullness of God is pleased to dwell with Him. Okay? So, so His divine, godly, His God, Sonship, Son of God. That is affirmed by God the Father in that statement, This is my beloved Son. And then He says, In whom I am well pleased. Why is God the Father well-pleased with Jesus, God the Son? Why is God the Father well-pleased with Jesus, God the Son? Why? Well, the reason why He's well-pleased is because of Christ's embracing of His mission. If we were to go to Philippians 2, we would read about how the mind... this. We should have the same mind should be in us that was in Christ Jesus who did not uh, perceive, did not think that being equal to God was something he should grasp, but he made himself like a servant. He humbled himself and became like a servant. He became obedient, obedient even to the point of death, death on a cross. Jesus, God the Son, submitted to the will of God the Father and fully embraced the mission of leaving heaven and coming to earth to bring glory and honor to God the Father by being a sacrifice of atonement for those whom God would redeem for His own people. The fact that Jesus left heaven and became a man, lived here on earth without any sin, lived perfectly, and then became a sacrifice by His death on the cross for all who would believe in Him. He became that sacrifice that purchased bought, secured, an eternal salvation. So the sin that is ours, Jesus Himself bore. The Scripture says that God made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that in Him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus embracing that mission of redeeming for God a people of His own choosing unto Himself. Namely, those who believe and are in Christ, and at least in part, you and I, 
if you are here today and trusting in Christ alone for the forgiveness of sin and hope of eternal life. So that mission, that life and death and burial and resurrection of Jesus, calling forth the response of repentance and faith, that mission is affirmed by God the Father in that statement of in whom I am well pleased. The source of God's good pleasure in God the Son is in His fulfillment of His mission. And then also, the content of this divine affirmation, and this is, this is just seen in the overall picture that the transfiguration paints for us. It's really a foreshadowing also. I mean, it's, it's what we've already said, but it is also a foreshadowing of Christ's second coming. Because here, here in the transfiguration, they see Jesus in, in a bit of his glorified state. They see him bestowed with glory and honor. Okay, well, that's not necessarily how we see Jesus through most of the Gospels now. Is He glorious and honorable? Absolutely. Is he, does He always remain to be God the Son? Absolutely. But yet we don't see Him that way. We see Him as the suffering servant, right? We, we see Him as the, the meek and mild and humble one. We see Him as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb that was slain. That's how we see Him. In his first coming, uh, a, a humble infant born uh, in a, you know, in a, in a stable and laid in a manger. That's that's what we see of Jesus most of the time in the Gospels. But in this one moment, we see him in power and in majesty and in glory and in honor, which is the way we'll see him at his second coming. And so the transfiguration also, the content of that divine affirmation is also this second coming of Christ. And that's certainly in, in view as Peter talks about the truth revealed and its surety, the confidence we can have in it. Uh, and we actually could go back up to verse 16 again. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to suggest to you that, that in part what Peter has in view there is the second coming. Not, 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 not just the general power of Christ and his coming into this earth to be a propitiation for, our, uh, our, for us, to take the wrath of God on us and to purchase for us an eternal salvation. That it's, that's not primarily what he has in view. And, and I would just give three really quick reasons for that. One is that um, the, the word that, that Peter uses here uh, in Greek for, that gets translated coming is used exclusively in the New Testament for Christ's second coming. So, so the, the word that he uses uh, communicates that. But then also, um, just knowing what Peter wrote about in 1 Peter. Peter's first letter to the churches in Asia Minor is, deals significantly and heavily with Christ's second coming. And it makes sense that he would carry that over and, and continue to speak about that in his second letter. And then finally, those who are false teachers, they are claiming that the idea of Christ's return is a myth. 
In fact, they would call it a cleverly devised myth. Okay, so that's, that's what the false teachers are accusing of. And so Peter is also addressing that. And so part, much of what he has in view is Christ's second coming. But it's also everything from verse 1 until verse 17. It's also that and the second coming. In fact, Peter seems to be linking those a little bit. He goes, linking those a little bit, saying, yes, we can be sure of God's transforming power, and we can be sure that this command to godliness, the command to live out that transformation is from God, and we can be sure also um, of the urgency of that command and of the need for godliness in our lives, and we can be sure of Christ's return, because all of that, all of it is truth revealed by God, and it's revealed through His Son and through His Word, which makes it sure. We can have that confidence. So, we understand that, that I, the confidence we have in this revealed truth is not because of the witness of man. But it is, in part, because of the witness of divine affirmation. But also, we have the witness of Scripture. The witness of Scripture. And again, we want to look at the origin and also the content of the witness of Scripture. Well, what is the origin of the witness of Scripture? Well, again, the origin is God. Look at verse 19. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit God spoke God is the origin of the witness of scripture because scripture is spoken by God it is God's word it is his holy word and right here in second peter in verse 19 through 21 Peter makes it very clear that it's not from man. He, he takes great pains to remind us that it's not by the interpretation of man, nor is it by the will of man. It's not man. We get that? We understand it's not from man, right? But it is from God, and here's how it's from God. It's spoken to men from God as those men were influenced and empowered and carried along by the Holy Spirit. So it's, it's like... You know, it's, it's spoken by God as those men are carried along, influenced by the Holy Spirit. So it's God the Father speaking as God the Holy Spirit affirms and confirms and enables them to hear from God. So it's God speaking. And this is not the only place in Scripture that we understand that that Scripture is God's Word. I mean, what's the what's the one that's very famous or popular in our understanding. It's 2 Timothy 3, 16, right? All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, reproof, and correction, and training in righteousness. All Scripture is breathed out by God. You know, and that, that's an interesting phrase because it, it, it implies the work of the Holy Spirit as well, that breathed out. You know, because if we go back in, and look at Hebrew, the Hebrew language the language of the Old Testament, it's very interesting that the same word for spirit and wind and breath is 
all the same word. So when, when the Old Testament talks about the Spirit of God, it uses this word. But then when it also talks about the breath of life, it uses this word. And then when it talks about the wind of God that blows across that valley of dry bones in Ezekiel and, and, and then flesh uh, and, and life comes into those dry bones, that same word. Breath, spirit, wind. So, so when Second Timothy tells us that all Scripture is given, is breathed out by God, it's kind of looking back to the way that word breath is used in the Old Testament, understanding that that is, that is God's voice by His Spirit, by the Holy Spirit that is blowing with power and giving this true word. That's how we ought to understand that breathed out by God. All scriptures breathed out by God. The scripture, the holy scriptures, these prophecies that Peter refers to, the prophecy of scripture, it's from God. That is its origin. But what about its content? What is the content of the witness of scripture as we see it here in 2 Peter 1, 18, or 19 to 21? Well, it's a lamp shining in a dark place. That's part of the content of the witness of Scripture, a lamp shining in a dark place. Does this remind you of any passage of Scripture that is descriptive of the Word of God? Something maybe in Psalm 119? Your Word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Right? I mean, that's, that's, again, what, that is what Peter is getting at when he talks about the witness of Scripture, it is a, it's a light and a lamp that shines in the dark place. I mean, it is, it is for truth and guidance. First, we see this lamp shining in a dark place as the truth. It, it is a source of truth for us. That's the content of the witness of Scripture. It is true. It is a source of truth. But it is also a source of guidance for us. Look what it says in Psalm 119. Think about it again. Uh, a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. What's that about? It's about traveling, going forward, walking the path, right? And it's being able to see, being guided on that path. And the content of Scripture is that it is a guide for our path. It illuminates the way for us. It guides our living. It guides our thinking. It certainly guides our belief. It must be a guide to belief and attitude and thinking and living. That is the content of the witness of Scripture. But it's also that until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Again, when the day dawns, Peter is again referring to the return of Christ. Christ's second coming. Because He's referring to the day that dawns. And, and throughout Scripture, going back to the Old Testament and continuing through the New Testament and into the book of Revelation, we see that the day of the Lord is prophesied as the time of Christ's return when He comes in judgment for those who are unrighteous and for the celebration of those who are righteous. And we understand that those who are righteous are righteous because of Christ, because of what He has done, and their response of repentance and faith. That's what makes them righteous. But, but we understand the day of the Lord is that time when the judge returns, Christ 
returns in power and judges the earth and punishes sin. And there is the gathering and the rejoicing of those who are in Christ, the celebration of those who are in Christ. That's why it is often called the great and terrible day of the Lord, because for some it will be a great day. It will be a day of celebration and a day of rejoicing. But it will also be a terrible day for some because it will be a day of judgment and wrath. And is that day of the Lord, that that's the day that dawns that Peter's referring to. He's referring to the second coming of Christ and, and, and the fact that it is the day of the Lord. And that day will one day dawn. It will surely, it will surely dawn. And... The morning star rises in your hearts. It's kind of a little bit of a confusing phrase because I, I think that Peter is being very straightforward. Straightforward, then he gets uh, then he gets a little poetic on us <laughs> here, and uh, and I struggle with poetry. You know some of my favorite poems, right? Roses are red, bacon is red. Poetry's hard. Bacon. That's a poem, right? I saw that somewhere. But he does get a little poetic here and talk about the, the, the morning star rises in our hearts. Of course, Jesus is referred to as the morning star. And, and really, what, what I think that Peter's getting at here is the effect of Christ coming on us, on our hearts, on, a, on, our, on us spiritually. It, on those who are in Christ, at His return, <laughs> everything is different, right? Even the things we struggle with now are gone. Hallelujah! I mean, the the struggle with sin is over. God, I long for that day because I struggle with sin. I struggle with doubt. Um, The application that we're going to get to in a few minutes is all about removing doubt and adding urgency. And I have to tell you that, that even like for the last two days, My own doubt has been revealed to me in my reactions to certain circumstances in my life. I'm living the life of a doubter. When the morning star rises in my heart at Christ's return, there will be no more doubt. I will long for the day when doubt is gone. And sin. Sin in my thinking sin in my actions, sin with my mouth, sin with my hands, sin with my speech. That's what I mean when I say sin with my mouth. Sin with my speech, my, my feet go in sinful directions, my mind thinks in sinful ways, and that will all be over. And that struggle will be gone. Not to mention, not to mention, and honestly, I don't know, maybe because my physical struggles aren't as great as others, I kind of see my physical struggles as maybe the, the least or the smallest of those, but those are going to be over too, right? Because at Christ's return, the dead in Christ will rise and be with Him first and then the rest of us, and, and there are these new bodies, and man, man, what long for that day. And so all of that kind of change that happens in us at the coming of Christ, that's what I think Peter's getting at when he says, the, the morning star rises in your hearts. Our hearts will rise in rejoicing and in gladness and in shouts and in hallelujahs at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the content of the witness of Scripture. So what about application? 
actually, I meant to tell you at the very beginning of the sermon that the application was going to be about removing doubt and adding urgency. And I was hoping that you'd be thinking about that throughout the sermon, but I forgot to tell you. So I'm telling you now. The application is about removing doubt and adding urgency. Because that's, that's what I think Peter was dealing with in the churches in Asia Minor. Doubt and a lack of urgency. And if we're honest, we struggle with, as I said earlier, doubt and lacking urgency. So how do we remove doubt? I mean, it's, it's one thing for me to say, go remove doubt. Well, how do you do that? How do we remove doubt? Well, I think removing doubt begins with rejoicing in the truth. We can rejoice in the truth that is revealed in Christ and in the Scriptures because it's from God. We know it's sure. We can rejoice in it. It's from Him. Rejoice in the truth. And the truth is a joyful thing. The truth, when you know it, sets you free. Right? So rejoice in the truth. And... Let's ground our belief in God, not man. I just want you to think back about Jesus, MacArthur, Jay-Z, all the great ones. The great ones always return. That is grounded in man and in foolishness. Our belief. Our faith must be grounded in God, not in man. Grounded in God, not in our culture. Regardless of what our culture says, it doesn't matter. Our belief must be grounded in God. If we are going to remove doubt, our faith and belief must be grounded in God, not in man. And then also to remove doubt, because remember I said that there was like this inward doubt, and then there's outward doubt. The inward doubt has to do with our thinking, our minds, our hearts, what we say to ourselves that we believe and that we don't believe. But there's another type of doubt, the outward doubt. And that's the doubt that maybe still says on the inside, I believe, but doesn't live that out. It's not expressed in living. In fact, there is a lifestyle that communicates, I don't believe what I say I believe because I'm not living the truth. Well, if we're going to remove that kind of doubt, it's simple. Live the truth. The truth that you know to be true, which is all of it that's revealed in Christ and in the Scriptures, because that is from God, it is sure, because it's from Him, will live it. Live the truth. That must be expressed in the way we respond to things. This is where I've struggled so much recently. This is where I've failed miserably in the last two days because of circumstances. I've just, I have, my, my thinking has been entirely human-oriented, and express nothing but doubt. That situation will never change. That situation cannot change. And then, here, here have been my actions. How am I going to fix this? How do I fix that person? How do I fix that? How do I, how do I fix it? Did, did you hear me? What did I say? I said, I doubt that God can fix it, so I will have to. Is that not kind of the height of doubt? I'm doubting in the choices that I make, in the way that I think, in the way that I respond, because I'm not living the truth. I don't know about you. I'm, I'm guessing this is going to be true for you, but it's absolutely true for me. For me to remove doubt from my life, I have to live the truth. And I think you do too. I think you too will have to 
live the truth. And then ground our living in God, not in man. Right? So, so in other words, we can't take our cues on how to respond, how to live, how to react, or how to be proactive, or, or whatever. We, we can't take those cues from man or our culture, but they must be grounded in God and the truth of His Word. Remove doubt. But then also add urgency. We must add urgency to the truth in our lives. Well, how do we add urgency? Well, I think a big part of the theme of today's text will help us add urgency, and that is to long for Christ's return. I mean, Peter just talked about the return of Christ a little bit. And and he really only talked about the effect of Christ's return in one phrase. The morning star rises in your hearts. And yet, when we thought about that just a little bit, it became exciting, did it not? I mean, did that increase your longing for Christ's return? I I hope that I did. I pray that it did. So why is it that we struggle with longing for Christ's return? Again, some confession time. I I guess if I confess enough, I might not be preaching next Sunday. But uh, um, some some confession. I don't often long for Christ's return. I've got to be honest. I don't even think about it that often. You know, I'm... I think about it mostly when I read about it in Scripture, and then occasionally, occasionally in a circumstance that someone else is in, I will remind them of Christ's return. See what I did there? For my own life, I don't often consider what it means that Christ will one day soon return. Why Why not long for Christ's return? Won't that add urgency to our lives if we are regularly longing and praying for and looking for Christ's return? And then if we're going to long for it and look for it, then we ought to live as if it was imminent. Another step in this process of adding urgency. Let us live as if Christ's return was imminent. Because it is. It is. Because it is sure, right? And even, even if it is hundreds or thousands of years from now, it is, still, it is still imminent because it is true. And God testifies to it. It will happen. And from God's perspective, it is happening and has happened, right? And remember, every promise of God we can take to the bank and live as though it has already happened, right? Is that true? It's true, right? It's true. Every promise of God we can take to the bank and we can live as though it's already happened. Well, guess what? God promises that Christ will return. So because it's promised and true, it is imminent and we can live as though Christ's return is imminent. Remember the context of today's message. It's Second Peter chapter 1. It's the surety of God's transforming power and the command to live out that transformation and the urgency to do so, as well as the promise of the powerful return of Christ. All of this is confirmed in the revelation of truth from God that we saw in the text today. And we're reminded that, <clears throat> that this the surety of this truth 
is not based on the witness of man, but the witness of divine affirmation and the witness of Scripture because the truth revealed in Christ and the Scriptures is sure because it comes from God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for the surety of your word, the surety of your affirmation of Christ. God, thank you for the promise of Christ's return. Father, I pray that we will have confidence in the surety of your truth because it is from you. God, I pray that we would remove doubt and add urgency as you empower us to do so because of your grace, grace expressed to us in Christ. We pray in Jesus' name.